0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and verses 1 to 14. These are verses which tell the story of when the recently resurrected Jesus appeared to seven of his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. So, John 21, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Let us now hear God's word. John writes, This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. A resurrection revelation. That's how John describes and even bookends this story about what took place by the sea sometime after that first Easter Sunday. And in putting it this way, John's saying that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, didn't simply appear to his disciples for appearance sake. No, he appeared to them for a purpose. And that purpose was to reveal something. But that's how revelation works. It makes known, it discloses, it unveils. And it does so that the one who receives the revelation might actually see and experience a deeper reality, God's reality, his reality that's at work in Jesus himself, who himself is the very revelation of God, the word of God made flesh. By the sea, the risen Jesus revealed himself and in so doing, He revealed three things in particular that I want us to take note of. First, He revealed who He is. Makes sense? He reveals who He is as the resurrected Lord. Now you'll notice in verse 4, we were told that when Jesus stood on the shore, the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. They weren't expecting Jesus and therefore didn't recognize Jesus when He first showed up. And they remained in this state of unrecognition until... Until when? until Jesus spoke to them and supplied them with a superabundance of fish. But even then, it was only one of His disciples that actually recognized Him. Verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom I take to be John, the author of, of this gospel, said to Peter, It's the Lord. But even after John's declaration, and even as the disciples were eating breakfast with Jesus, they still had trouble recognizing Him. We're told in verse 12, Now none of the disciples dared ask Him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was the risen Jesus. However, within them, there was this sort of deep urge that made them want to ask, Who are you? Who are you really? Now what a strange and mysterious verse. If the disciples knew it was Jesus, why did they feel the need to ask Him, Who are you? I mean, Imagine going up to somebody you know really well spouse, child, parent, really close friend, and saying to them, I know it's you, but who are you? I think at that point when you ask ask them, who are you, they might say, what's wrong with you? You know who I am. It would seem like a strange thing, and yet that's what's going on in the disciples' hearts. They knew it was Jesus, and yet they really wanted to ask Him. They didn't dare ask Him, but something within them made them want to say, who are you? Who are you really? The reason is because there was something unfamiliar about Jesus, something strange and mysterious, so much so that they felt this urge to ask, who are you? And the question is, why? Why'd they feel this urge? Well, because of the radical newness of Jesus' person, specifically the radical newness of His resurrected humanity that now radiated with perfect divinity. For here's the thing, on that beach... As they ate breakfast, the disciples were truly in the presence of glory, of God's glory shining in the resurrected humanity of Jesus. For His humanity that could and did die on the cross was actually transformed in the resurrection. I mean, He came out of the grave glorified, glorified with a body that death Could no longer touch, that was no longer subject to death and decay. And this resurrection reality was one of which made the disciples go, We have no category for this. We have no way to make sense of this, of what we are experiencing in Jesus. And therefore, on that shore, they found themselves utterly surprised and startled in the presence of the one who actually conquered death. They found themselves dumbfounded in the presence of a full-fledged human being for the first time. Now think about that. They had been around human beings. They were a human being, but in what they were experiencing in Jesus, they were encountering humanity in the way God always intended it. And they were startled and they were surprised. They were startled that this full-fledged humanity of Jesus was also filled with the very glory of the infinite God. Because in revealing himself by the sea, Jesus was revealing two things at the same time. His true humanity and his true divinity of what it means to be fully human and fully God. And in light of this revelation, the disciples were in awe. And as we put ourselves in this story, which is what we're supposed to do as we listen to the stories of the gospel and the story of scriptures, we put ourselves in it, we're to ask the same question. Are we in awe? Do we stand in awe before the risen and glorified Jesus, knowing that in him is life, because he is life. He's the eternal life of God, embodied and communicated in his crucified and resurrected humanity. He is the living one, over which death no longer has dominion. You stand in awe of Jesus, the resurrected Lord, in awe of him who is true God, in true flesh. In the flesh, in the humanity, God always had in mind and purposed to create, even from the very beginning. At the same time, are we in awe that if we belong, if we belong to the risen Jesus, then death also no longer has dominion over us. Now, yes, we'll go through physical death. But the truth is, we're no longer subject to death's full domain because we belong to the one who actually conquered death in His crucifixion and resurrection. And what this means is that God's ultimate goal, God's ultimate goal for His people is a resurrection goal. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then we too will be raised. God's ultimate goal for His people isn't an immaterial existence. It's certainly not us strumming harps on clouds for all of eternity. I don't know who would want to do that, but sometimes that's the picture we get. That's not God's goal. God's goal for us is bodily resurrection, a resurrection where the whole of our beings, body and soul, will become incorruptible with the very life of God. As we're told in 1 John, one day we will see Jesus. We will see Jesus as He is, and we will be like Jesus. So, by the sea, the disciples knew that it was Jesus, and yet they found themselves amazed by Him. Amazed by Him who went into death and came through death. And in being amazed, they became assured that all who trust in Him, that the very same thing will be true for them in their humanity. But there's another reason I think the disciples wanted to ask Jesus, Who are you? And it's this. You see, when it comes to knowing Jesus... There's always more to know. We'll never exhaust our knowledge of the risen Jesus. That's why the joyous journey Christian is one of striving and stretching to know Jesus more and more, to know his eternal life, his eternal light, and his eternal love. We could put it like this. It'll take all of eternity, take all of eternity for us to know the resurrected Jesus who is God in the flesh. For the treasures of his life and love are inexhaustible. There will always be more to know and adore, more surprises, more satisfaction, and more sheer delight. Yes, we'll know Jesus, but there will always be more depths to plummet, more heights to scale, more terrain to traverse. We'll know Jesus, but I think for all of eternity, we'll we'll be wanting to ask, who are you? Really show me more and more of your beauty of your splendor, and of your glory. But here's the thing, we aren't to wait until eternity to begin that journey in order to begin it now. Having Christ as our greatest desire, our desire to know Him and to keep on asking, who are you? Because only as we grow in the knowledge of the risen Jesus will we actually grow in the knowledge of who God is and the knowledge of who we are, of what it means to be humans made in the image and likeness of God, which is ultimately the image and likeness of Jesus. But then secondly, in this resurrection revelation, Jesus shows us who he is, but then secondly, Jesus shows us in this resurrection revelation what he alone can do as the risen Lord. See this, we need to be reminded, where are the disciples when Jesus first meets them? They're on the sea. And in the Bible, the sea often represents the place of chaos and confusion. But not only were they on the sea, they were so at night. They were in darkness. And after fishing all night long, what did they have to show for all their labor? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So before the resurrected Jesus appeared, the disciples were in a state of chaos, darkness, and nothingness. It was into this state state that represents our lives and our world apart from God, that the risen Jesus showed up. And in showing up, He brought clarity to their chaos. He brought light to their darkness. He brought His abundance to their darkness. At the same time, He brought His invitation, His invitation to breakfast, a breakfast that symbolized what He ultimately came to do, and that is to bring us into intimate communion with Himself, and if we're in intimate communion with Christ, then we're actually in intimate communion, living communion with God himself. This revelation revealed the reality that the risen Jesus alone can meet our deepest needs in these broken lives and in this broken world. Our need for the light of his presence and the fullness of his person. So the question is, do we see it? Do we actually believe in this reality that there's nothing in our life that's beyond the power of Jesus' resurrection that actually meets us where we are to give us clarity in the light of His presence, clarity to our confusion, to give us light to our darkness, His fullness, to our nothingness? As Jesus said much earlier in John 15, we can do nothing apart from Him because apart from Him, we actually are nothing. Yet He comes to our nothingness to fill us with Himself. So Jesus revealed Himself to show us who He is, what He alone can do. But there's one more thing, and that is this revela- uh, resurrection revelation actually makes known to us the reality that God's new day has actually broken into the world. Where do we see this in the story? Well, again, in verse 4, when John, the writer, who so many times in this gospel is writing on more than one level, tells us that just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. As we saw last week, Jesus' resurrection was actually the birthday of God's new creation. When Jesus burst forth from the grave, God's new day His day of light and love and life actually dawned upon a darkened world. It dawned upon a world enslaved to darkness and bent on death and nothingness. You see, Jesus' resurrection is actually God's amen, God's yes to this creation. It's His definitive statement that He'll never abandon this creation. He'll never abandon our lives to darkness and death. Jesus' resurrection is God's tangible commitment to restore and renew all things. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God's new day dawned. And one day it will rise in full to make all things new and shine with the glory of God. But until that day, how are we to live today? Put another way, what does this resurrection revelation teach us about actually living in the present well, that moves us to our second main point there on your outline, and that is it teaches us about what matters. And in light of Jesus' resurrection, what does matter? Everything, even fishing. And if you read the commentators on this passage, you'll find that they go round and round on whether it was right for these seven disciples to go fishing. You see, back in chapter 20, we looked at this last week on Easter Sunday, Jesus called the disciples into ministry to go and proclaim the gospel. The gospel concerning his life, death, and resurrection. So the question is, were these guys turning their backs on Jesus' call by choosing to return to their former work of fishing? The answer is no. It wasn't wrong for them to go fishing. They went fishing, one, because they needed to eat, and two, because they actually liked fishing. It wasn't wrong. It was actually good for them to go fishing. And we know this because when Jesus showed up, he didn't scold them guys, what are you doing? I called you into ministry. What are you wasting your time with fishing? He didn't scold them. He actually provided for them. And in doing so, he actually sanctified their fishing. He showed them that their work and their play are good and holy because they're gifts of God, now redeemed by God in Jesus. You see, Jesus' resurrection actually puts a death nail into any view or practice that that wants to divide our lives into separate categories of sacred and secular, as if sacred activities are of more value to God than non sacred ones. In meeting his disciples on an ordinary day, amidst ordinary activities, we're being taught that work and play, music, meals, study, and socializing matter. They're not just something we do in the meantime until we get to sell off until the sweet by and by. No, these things have value. They have eternal value. They're good. They're places where the risen Jesus is at work and at play, meeting us in His grace. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that everything created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, the ground upon which we walk and the activities in which we engage are once again declared good. God actually likes these things. He likes fishing. He's glorified in and through them. In light of Jesus' resurrection, everything our hand finds to do is to be done in gratitude to the glory of God. It's because of Jesus' resurrection that we can actually say and confess and sing that this is my Father's world. So what matters? Everything. But what's the motivation? That's the next point. What does this resurrection revelation teach us about our motivation for living as Christians? And to see this, we need to look at Peter. We need to look at what he did, first of all, when he was informed by John that it was the Lord who spoke to them and supplied them with such a large amount of fish. What did he do? He threw himself into the water. He threw himself right in the water. He jumped right in. Verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he threw himself, he chunked himself into the sea, and he started swimming back toward the shore. Now, I love this scene because if you're one of the disciples in the boat, all of a sudden he's overboard. And before you can even say, man, overboard, you see that he's swimming back to the shore. You slowly get your paddles and start rowing, and you sort of pass him on the way as this Guy's sort of doing the hundred-yard dash as fast as he can in the water. And you're probably thinking, man, he is impulsive. And Peter, of course, was impulsive. And, but it wasn't mere impulse that threw him into that water, that led him to do what he did. It was excitement. He wanted to see Jesus, and he wanted to be with Jesus. But that's where this story takes a, a strange turn, because it says when they all got to the shore, what did they see? saw a charcoal fire. Verse 9, when they all arrived on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. They, and particularly Peter, saw a charcoal fire. I will think, well, why is that significant? Well, because the last time we actually see a charcoal fire in the Gospel of John, we see Peter standing around one as he denies that he has any relationship with Jesus. And now here's another charcoal fire, and sitting by it is the one Peter previously rejected. Now, what do you think Peter wanted to do when he saw the charcoal fire? He probably wanted to jump back in the sea and start swimming away. Now, the question is, why did Jesus build a charcoal fire? I mean, he could have gotten some wood. He could have done anything. Any kind of fire. Why a charcoal fire? Was it because he wanted to shame Peter further? Was it uh, Jesus' way of saying, you know, Peter, I'll never forget what you did? That's not the way Jesus deals with his people. He didn't build a charcoal fire to remind Peter of his failure and leave him there. No, he built a charcoal fire to renew Peter in his own grace, to show Peter how his crucified and risen grace forgives our failures, how it takes our stories of brokenness and makes them beautiful. Jesus built a charcoal fire to say to Peter, yes, you denied me, but I will never deny you. I actually died for your denial, and I was raised that you might be brought into a restored and new relationship with me. I gave my all for you, Peter, that you might find your all in me and give me your all. Jesus built a charcoal fire as a monument to His grace, His grace that takes our worst failures and actually has the power to transform them into tokens of His forgiveness and restoration. And Peter actually got this. How do we know he got it? Well, from what we're told in verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, bring some of the fish you just caught. How did Peter respond? It says, he went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Now think about that. The very net that we're told earlier that all the disciples could barely haul, Peter now goes and does it all by himself, pulling it out of the boat and bringing it right to Jesus. Is this because he's trying to earn Jesus' favor, maybe impress Jesus? No, he'd already received Jesus' favor. The fact that Jesus came out of the grave and was meeting him, inviting him in, actually became the motivation. It was Jesus' crucified and resurrected grace that led Peter, actually strengthened Peter, to go into that boat and haul that all by himself to bring it to Jesus. And it wasn't because Jesus needed the fish. Matter of fact, Jesus already had breakfast going before they even caught the fish. And yet He wanted Peter to bring it. And so what was going on here is that Jesus had gifted Peter with all of these fish. What does Peter do? He returns the gift back to Jesus in gratitude, in love, and in obedience because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And my friends, the grace that Jesus showed Peter is the very same grace He's shown us So the question is, how are we responding? We could put it this way. Are we hauling our all to Jesus, to Him who first hauled His all for us, His very life, all the way to the cross, uh, into the grave, and out the other side? Are we motivated and captivated by Jesus' grace? So, in light of this resurrection revelation, what matters? Come on, everything. Good. Somebody said it. What's the motivation? It's His crucified and resurrected grace that forgives and restores and invites us in. His grace that calls us children. For in Jesus, we're God's beloved and forgiven children. Let me conclude. I'm just going to sum up what all all this means. Put another way, what are the implications for this resurrection revelation? Well, the first is Jesus was raised for relationship. For relationship with us. He was raised to be in a relationship with you. What's this relationship to look like? Well, it's to look like listening intentionally and obediently to His Word. We see that with the disciples. Cast the net on the other side. Nah, that'll never work. Well, they did it. We're to listen as well because of who He is. It looks like gathering for worship. It looks like giving ourselves to Jesus and being at His disposal It looks like growing in the knowledge of Jesus more and more by asking the question the disciples didn't dare ask. Who are you? Show me more and more of your grace and glory and goodness. So he was raised for a relationship, a true relationship. Second, Jesus was raised that we might do all we do heartily, heartily in our homes and workplaces, in our hobbies and neighborhoods and relationships, so that in all these areas... His resurrection life might actually begin to be seen in us. You see, here's the reality. God the Father is the ultimate hauler. The hauler not of fish, but of people. Of hauling people by His Spirit to trust in His resurrected Son. And so often the Father does this through us. He hauls people, draws people to Jesus through our living faithfully right where He's planted us as we use our gifts and talents, words and actions to make Jesus and his resurrection life known, as we use our flesh, our humanity that's now united to Jesus' humanity to bring glory to God. And then finally, one last thing, Jesus was raised that we might live expectantly, expecting Jesus to show up to show up ultimately at His return, yes, but also to show up in the ordinariness and mundaneness of our days. And because this is so, are we a people who are on the lookout for the risen Jesus? Are we watchful for Him, doing what we do in love for Him who first loved us, who loved us all the way to death? Us, with all of our junk, loved us all the way to death and beyond. So that in turn, we might learn to say in all of our circumstances, confidently, joyfully, and gratefully, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And because He is, we're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the risen Lord, our labor is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. Because we belong to the God who takes what seems to be vanity, The cross on a Friday, and actually shows it to be the very purpose and fulfillment of God's plan in the resurrection. He's doing the same thing with our lives, much that seems futile, much that seems vain and empty, and He's actually filling it with Himself as we continue to trust Him, as we continue to listen to Him, and as we continue to encourage one another in the reality that Christ is risen, and we're going to be okay. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son, the gift of His life, the gift of His resurrection life. Thank You that we are able to say by Your grace that we have died with Him, been raised with Him, our lives are hidden with Him even now, and one day we'll be revealed in glory at His return. May what we say with our lips become more and more true in our hearts, minds, and lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.